If I say the words spirituality and meditation, I wonder what comes into your mind. Maybe something like this. Spirituality and meditation are very popular today. Celebrities are into spirituality. Books and films about spirituality make a lot of money. Some of you might be familiar with the book Eat, Pray, Love. It was recently turned into a film. It's about a lady trying to tune in to spirituality. She dabbles in some Eastern religion. She visits a few gurus. And as Christians, especially Christians in more sober circles like ours, it's easy to look at this and just dismiss all of it. It's all just about experience. But we are about truth. Yes, we are about truth. But tonight I want to suggest that we're wrong if we think truth is incompatible with experience. The reason spirituality is such a big seller today is because we're spiritual beings. People sense that, and so they're hungry for spiritual experience. And I believe that as Christians, we should be too. Certainly, the great heroes of Scripture were hungry for spiritual experience. Remember what Moses said to God Show me your glory. Or David, one thing I ask of the Lord, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. In Psalm 34, David invites us to taste and see that the Lord is good. That's the language of experience. Not just information about God, but experience of God. And the great heroes of church history have been hungry for spiritual experience. George Muller said, every day my primary business is to have my soul happy in the Lord. That was his primary business of every day. We could go on and on. We could look into the life of every major figure God has used in history and we'd find a man or woman who is hungry for spiritual experience. And so over the next handful of Sunday nights, whenever it's my turn, I'm going to do my best to inspire you to pursue spirituality. And straight away, as I say that, I need to clarify the kind of spirituality I'm talking about. For the Christian, our spiritual experience must flow out of our interaction with God's truth. Most of the spirituality that's on offer today is just a free-for-all. It's not grounded on any firm foundation. It's about emptying your mind. And the kind of experience that results from that tends to be superficial and short-lived. It doesn't produce any lasting change in people's lives. But we're going to focus on biblical spirituality. And biblical spirituality is always grounded in God's truth, the Bible. And the kind of experience that we long for as Christians is not superficial. It's not just a good feeling. It's the kind of experience that produces deep change in our lives. It brings lasting fruit. So this is going to be our focus for probably four nights between now and June. And if we want to learn about biblical spirituality, the place to turn is the book of Psalms. 
Psalms has been called the prayer book of the Bible. It's been called the sanctuary at the heart of the Bible. And the Psalms, as you know, we find the full range of emotions and spiritual experience. The full range. This book has been called a catalog or guidebook to the breadth and depth of spiritual experience. And one of the most fascinating things about this book is its arrangement. There are 150 Psalms. And somewhere along the line, they were arranged in an order. We'll think more about that another night. But for tonight, it's worth taking a moment to notice the part Psalm 1 plays in the book as a whole. The Psalms are prayers. But Psalm 1 is not a prayer. Along with Psalm 2, it forms an introduction to the whole book. Commentators agree that Psalms 1 and 2 form a gateway to the book of Psalms. They're like two big pillars set up at the entrance to the book of Psalms. And Psalm 1 is the first pillar in that gateway. So if the book as a whole is filled with spiritual experience, Psalm 1 shows us the way in to spiritual experience. If we want true spirituality, we can't get to it unless we go through Psalm 1. It's the gateway that God has set in front of true spirituality. It's the gateway into true prayer and worship and emotional health and a stable, fruitful life. Those are very big claims. But in the case of Psalm 1, they're appropriate claims. We've had this read for us in three different translations already. And let's read it now in the NIV. And this time, please do turn and follow along in your Bible. It should be right in the middle. In the Church Bible, it's page 543. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is God's word. In the time we have, we're going to look at the psalm as a whole, which won't take us long. It's a short psalm. And then we'll focus in on the heart of this psalm. And as you can see on the screen, the heart of the psalm is meditation. So we'll think about what biblical meditation is and what it isn't. For example, it is not Bible reading. It is not prayer. We'll think about what it is. Then next time we'll think about how we can begin to practice biblical meditation. That's why the screen says part one. 
I'll not be using points on the screen because I think the point of Psalm 1 is to motivate us to meditation. That's why it stands here as the gateway to the book of Psalms. We are to meditate on what we find in this book. So Psalm 1, the first word of the psalm is blessed. We could translate that happy. It's talking about well-being. And the first thing the psalm tells us about happiness and well-being is that those who have it are free from something. They're free from the sinful patterns of mind and life that are all around us. That's what verse 1 is talking about. To walk in the counsel of the wicked is to accept the advice of those who don't know God. To stand in the way of sinners is to live like those who don't know God. And to sit in the seat of mockers is to share the attitudes of those who don't know God. Verse 1 is describing the patterns of thinking and behaving and relating that are all around us. And they really are all around us. We're like fish swimming in water. Just as a fish can't help being surrounded by the water, so we can't help being surrounded by sinful patterns of thinking, behaving, and relating. We're like fish in water. It's impossible to remove ourselves from their influence completely. Even if we go and live in a monastery, even if we start up a Christian school, Sin finds its way into monasteries and Christian schools too. We might build strong walls against it, but just like water, sin finds its way in through the cracks. But verse 1 is talking about the man or woman who is blessed because they don't conform to those sinful patterns that are all around. They're free from the slavery of those sinful patterns. They think And behave and relate differently from those who don't know God. What verse 1 is saying is that if we're currently enslaved to sinful patterns, we can break free from that slavery. And if we are not enslaved, it's possible to stay free. And verse 2 tells us how. This is describing the man or woman who does not do what verse 1 has mentioned. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The word translated law is Torah. It means direction or instruction that comes from God. So it's certainly not confined to those sections of the Old Testament that are filled with laws. It includes all of God's instruction. That means the Bible as a whole. Because the Bible presents us with a different set of patterns of thinking and behaving and relating. The blessed or happy man or woman is the one who conforms to those patterns. They delight to walk and stand and sit in God's ways. So how do we break free from and how do we avoid sinful patterns? How do we conform our hearts and minds and lives to patterns that lead to well-being, to God's patterns. How do we do that? By meditating day and night on God's instruction. We'll come back to think in detail about what exactly that means. 
But first look what's promised to the person who meditates day and night on God's instruction. We've had one promise already. Freedom from the slavery of sinful patterns of life and thought. Now verse 3 gives us three more promises. The man or woman who meditates day and night on God's instruction is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. First of all, there's the promise of stability, like a tree planted by streams of water. That's talking about a steadiness that remains even when we're being blown about by all kinds of winds, lashed by all kinds of weather. And that stability comes from receiving nourishment, like a tree being fed by a stream. So the person who meditates on God's instruction receives spiritual nourishment, and they're able to stand. And not only stand, there is also the promise of fruitfulness. It yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. Notice this is not a promise of a life full of plain sailing. We will go through seasons in our lives, just like a tree, times of hot and cold, sun and shadow, rain and drought. But we will not wither as we go through those seasons. We will still be spiritually fruitful. Then there's a final promise, whatever he does prospers. Since Psalm 1 is commanding godly rather than ungodly patterns, we know that prosperity here is not primarily talking about health and wealth. A pastor called Tim Keller gives us a good definition of prosperity here. It means nothing you do will ever be in vain. Another writer says this is not an assurance of great wealth, but assurance of God's blessing on our words and works. Our words and works will have eternal value. Those are promises for those who meditate day and night on God's instruction. What about those who don't? Verse 4. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. When grain is harvested... Chaff is the husks and the fragments of straw that get mixed in with the grain. So the farmer would toss the grain up in the air, the chaff would blow away off to the side, and the heavier grain would fall straight back down. One writer says, Chaff is the ultimate in what is rootless, weightless, and useless. And verse 3 says, That's what those who live without God are like. They're the opposite of the tree from verse 2. The tree was stable. Those who live without God are rootless. They're unstable. They're blown around by every wind of life. Any stability they appear to have can be ruined in a moment. Their lives are built on unstable things. Income, investments, Human relationships, good health, popularity. All things that can turn and vanish in an instant. 
The tree was fruitful. Those who live without God are dry husks. And they have no future. Verse 5. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The assembly of the righteous means the people of God. When the judgment day comes, those who live without God will not have a firm place to stand. That's the message of Psalm 1. There are only two ways to live. We're either in godly patterns of thinking and behaving and relating, and we're growing in those patterns, or we're in ungodly patterns of thinking and behaving and relating, and growing in those patterns. And each of those two ways leads to its own inevitable conclusion. Either prosperity, meaning a life that counts, a life that's watched over by God, or a life that's rootless, weightless, not counting for anything, and ending in destruction. Now, as every one of us here knows, becoming a Christian does not change you overnight into someone who's completely unaffected by ungodly patterns. The New Testament is clear. When we put our trust in Jesus, we're given new life. We're changed. We receive God the Holy Spirit as our helper to help us live for Jesus. But in most cases, ungodly patterns don't just fall away instantly from our lives. The New Testament keeps calling Christians to be transformed not to conform any longer to the pattern of this world. The New Testament keeps calling Christians to keep in step with the spirit that's in us. There are only two ways to live. But the Bible knows that in this world, we're either always progressing in godly patterns of life, or we're drifting deeper into ungodly patterns. We're never static. We don't just park ourselves one day in the godly way of life. We're either moving forward in the godly way or we're getting more tangled up in the ungodly way. In fact, if we try to stay static as Christians, we know what happens. Our ways of thinking and behaving and relating will conform to the ungodly ways that are all around us. That's how it works. And that's where Psalm 1 verse 2 comes in. Verse 2 gives us the key to increasing freedom from ungodly patterns of life. It gives us the key to increasing transformation, increasing conformity to godly life patterns. The key that Psalm 1 verse 2 gives us is meditation. And before we try and get an understanding of what biblical meditation is, Notice what verse 2 tells us about the object and the pattern of biblical meditation. It's meditation on God's word. That's the object of our meditation. We don't meditate on our navel. We don't meditate on our own ideas. We don't meditate on a nice picture. The object we meditate on is God's written word. And then the pattern of our meditation is to be day and night. 
Remember, we're surrounded by ungodly advice and lifestyles and attitudes. We get exposure to that day and night. It's invading our minds and hearts all the time. It's seeping into us like water through cracks. We don't even realize it. And so we need equally regular and pervasive exposure to God's word. And as I've been reading about this over past weeks, I've come across the same statement again and again. Writers agree that the quintessential mark of the godly person is that he or she habitually meditates on God's word. If you or I know a Christian who remains stable through the storms of life, who is fruitful, who shows godly patterns of thinking and behaving and relating, you can be sure that behind what you and I see lies a life of habitual meditation on God's word. That's true today, and it has been true throughout church history. It was true in the life of, for example, Augustine. You read his biography. Martin Luther, the Puritans. Today, the Puritans have a reputation for being dry and austere people, but they were exactly the opposite. They were people of deep spiritual experience. Pick up their writings. They're all about spiritual experience flowing out of meditation on God's truth. We find the same thing with Jonathan Edwards, Hudson Taylor. I've already mentioned George Muller. They were all habitual meditators on God's word. And we would find the same thing if we investigated the lives of other heroes of the faith. I've just given a random list. But unfortunately, this is a practice that has been lost among many Christians today. And I believe we desperately need to recover it. For the sake of our own souls, for the sake of our families, and for the sake of this country that we live in. So then, what is meditation? According to scripture. I've already said that it isn't Bible reading and it isn't prayer. But it does grow out of Bible reading and it does lead into prayer. Meditation has been called the missing link between Bible intake and prayer. Many of us have had the experience of reading our Bibles, maybe a couple of chapters, a chapter, then closing our Bibles and having no recollection of what we've just read, or immediately forgetting what we've just read. Some of you have told me that you don't use a Bible reading plan because it just turns into a box ticking exercise. You don't feel it impacts you. And I can sympathize with that. But I can also assure you that meditation is the way to take scripture reading beyond a mere box ticking exercise, ticking off your little chart. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, the reason we come away so cold from reading the word is because we do not warm ourselves at the fire of meditation. The reason we come away so cold from reading the word is because we do not warm ourselves at the fire of meditation. 
Again, many of us have had the experience of real dryness in our praying. Maybe we have a prayer list or a prayer diary of people and ministries to pray for. And much of the time, we can't for the life of us think what to pray for those people and ministries. So we just end up bouncing down the list. God bless him and her and them. Meditation is what gives fuel and substance to our prayers. It's the missing link between Bible intake and prayer. It feeds our prayers. And it's the missing link between Bible intake and application. Without meditation, what we read in Scripture often can seem far removed from our lives. But meditation results in personal application. Now let me give you some definitions of biblical meditation. I don't know if this is a new idea for you or not. So I'm just going to unload these on you tonight to try to help us get some sense of what we're talking about. Then next time, in a few weeks' time, we'll think about how we can begin to practice meditation ourselves if we're not already doing that. Next time I'll give you Martin Luther's method for meditation. Here's one definition. Meditation is deep thinking on the truths and spiritual realities revealed in Scripture for the purposes of understanding, application, and prayer. Here's another definition from George Muller. Meditation is not the simple reading of the Word of God so that it only passes through our minds just as water runs through a pipe, but considering what we read pondering over it and applying it to our hearts. Or again, a different writer, but using almost the same picture. It's possible to encounter a torrential amount of God's truth, but without absorption, you will be little better for the experience. Meditation is absorption. So that tells us we're not talking here about Bible study. Bible study is important. Before we meditate on God's word, we need to have a good grasp of what it means, what it's saying. But sitting down with a study Bible open or a commentary is not meditation. Meditation is pondering or musing or chewing over the truth, the truth that we've read or studied. It's thinking out the ramifications of that truth. It's concentrating on and penetrating to the heart of the truth that we've read. Meditation, according to Psalm 1, is what brings deep change in our lives, freedom from ungodly patterns, and conformity to godly patterns. And for me personally, the most helpful way to think about meditation is to describe it as formative reading. Usually when we read our Bibles, it's informative reading. We're taking on information. So this is what happened to Israel, or this is what Paul said to the Romans, or these are God's promises about the future. And that kind of informative reading is vital for us. We need to know what God's Word says. But we also need to go on to formative reading, reading that forms our hearts and minds and wills. 
that forms them into the likeness of Christ. That's what meditation is. It's going to God's word in order to be formed, not just informed. Let me give you two more definitions and then we're done for the evening. First from Matthew Henry, and the language is a bit older here, but it's very helpful. Meditation is to discourse with ourselves concerning the great things contained in God's word with a close application of mind, a fixedness of thought, till we be suitably affected with those things and experience the savor and power of them in our hearts. Notice he's using the language of experience. Being affected. And again, he's talking about thinking it out. To discourse with ourselves. And notice too, the effort. A close application of mind. A fixedness of thought. The last definition is from Richard Baxter. He's a Puritan who ministered for many years in Kidderminster. He says, meditation is fixing, forcing, and ordering our thoughts around some truth to affect our own hearts and souls with the matter of the things contained in it. Fixing, forcing, and ordering our thoughts around a truth. Meditation involves concentration. But it's not just an intellectual exercise. Notice that Baxter also brings out this idea of experience that leads to formation. We meditate, he says, to affect our hearts and souls. Meditation is the gateway to spiritual experience that produces deep change and lasting fruit in our lives. That's the way God has set things up. Next time we'll come back to the Psalms and we'll try to dig into this a bit more. We'll see how we can try to make this a part of our own lives. But for now, I hope at least tonight you can see the importance of this and the attractiveness of it. So let's ask God to whet our appetite for more. Let's pray. Father, we come to you tonight as we are. Maybe most of us would say that our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. We are aware, most of us, of the ungodly patterns in our lives, in our thinking and behaving and relating to one another. We want to be free from them. We want a deeper experience of you. We want spiritual stability and fruitfulness in our lives. But we admit too that more often than not, we just drift along spiritually. We float. And so we ask, will you give us a hunger for a deeper experience of you? The kind of experience that brings deep change into our lives. We don't want your word to just pass through our minds like water through a pipe. We want to apply it to our hearts. We want it to affect our hearts. So will you show us that your words are life? Show us that we can't live on bread alone. 
We need the words that have come to us from your mouth. The words recorded in Scripture. We need not just to know those words, but to absorb them and apply them to our lives. So will you help us? Amen. From the breaking of the dawn, I will stand on every promise of your word. If our musicians are able to, again, give us a lead.